Hello team and welcome to episode 384 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kyle Gillette. Kyle is a dual board certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine and provides holistic individualized care to his patients. There were so many different routes traveled down in today's conversation, so Kyle and I cover a number of topics to give you the best advice on how to optimize your health from the inside out. In this episode, you can expect to learn how we can optimize our brain health for better focus, attention span, and memory retention, what the downsides are of weight loss injections, along with the taboo subject of how to optimize your sexual health and performance. So without further ado, Dr. Kyle Gillette. the show. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing great. I am glad to hear and I'm excited to have you on the show today and really looking forward to diving in deep. But before we begin, for those who may have not come across yourself before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Yeah. So I'm a medical doctor, an MD, and I do what I call health optimization. Sometimes I make the analogy that there's a couple couple different types of owners of cars. Some people like to get their oil changed and they'd like to get uh, their tires rotated and that's it. Some people never like to go to the mechanic. The life of their car is probably going to be very short and it's going to break down a lot. And then there's a type that like to perform well. They could do a race car mechanic. Maybe they, maybe they have a Formula One team or a Formula One car. So there's all different types of car owners. But people are like that too because at the end of the day, we're just organic machines. Just like some people are obsessed with high-performance cars, I'm obsessed with high cognitive performance, high athletic performance, etc. And basically, I've designed my, um, I guess, career in order to do that best. So a lot of people are biohackers. Um, they might be extremely knowledgeable, but they don't have a background in traditional medicine like an MD would. So I'm dual board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine. So that way you're well-versed in all the different organ systems of the body. And that way also you can uh, take into account the goals of the patient. So instead of just going by the algorithm, which is what a lot of traditional doctors do, you can take in the goal of a patient and do what's called shared decision-making, which is you explain the benefits and the risk and come to a decision weighing those two on a scale. I love how you, like you've mentioned, you shaped it all to your preferences to optimize all those things you're interested in and also to shape it around the patient that you're working with as well. And I'm curious, where did it all begin in terms of your interest in this area? I'm sure that there were many different career paths you were interested in. What made you go down the route of this one? Yeah, I've known that I was going to do concierge medicine since I was about 12. So I was homeschooled. My older brother's one year ahead of me. I did all the courses with him um, and a lot of homeschoolers in general, just go through education very early and finish high school, finish college early, et cetera. And my dad is also a doctor. I live in Kansas. So in Kansas and the Midwest in general, there's a lot of what's called full spectrum family doctors. For example, he delivered babies for 30 years. He still practices actually, and he provides holistic care. So body, mind, and soul. He prays for his patients, things that a lot of doctors might not do. You know, obviously he doesn't force them to do anything, but if the patient has those goals, he does those things. And I saw that it was particularly rewarding for him. He really liked his job and a lot of doctors are burned out and they don't like their jobs. So I saw that there was an opportunity to have a very fulfilling career. And I was also very interested in science and its clinical applications as well. So 
everything else from there is just me finishing my education and becoming very interested in different health optimization niches. Now, supply and demand is actually a thing in medicine as well. And it's kind of hard to talk about because at the end of the day, there is a huge demand for high quality medical care and we cannot meet the supply even though developed countries spend not more than 50%, but it's some huge portion of our GDP on health-related expenses. I think it's something like 30%. So even with that, there is still a lot of what I call robot algorithm medicine, and a lot of people are referral robots as well. So it's like, well, here is what you get via the algorithm. A robot could do that, and here is a referral to a specialist. A robot could also do that. And then we have another problem. Anybody, I don't know how familiar the audience is with medical education in the United States, but it used to be looked at as some of the best. And now the applicants for medical school get worse and worse every year, specifically the applicants to what's called primary care specialties. That's like pediatrics, family medicine. I've had hundreds of people tell me, don't do a family medicine residency, but it's actually the most complicated because you have the highest ceiling. You have to learn all organ systems in the body and you have to know a lot about anything from obstetrics to dermatology to endocrinology. So you have a combination of people who are becoming doctors because they're not passionate. You know, obviously some of them are, but a lot of them are just in it for the money. They do whatever specialty statistically has the highest annual income. And then you have the most difficult, complicated specialties that can make a huge difference in preventive care. Preventive care is always going to make more of a like difference per dollar. James O'Hara and I have a colleague, his name is Dr. Taylor Martin. That's basically what he studies. He studied at Johns Hopkins. He's board certified in preventive medicine. He's an MPH. He's a data informatics, uh, essentially biostatistician. And that's where we should be putting our energy. But all that being said, supply and demand, I wanted to be very good and adept at pathologies that are common. And obesity and metabolic syndrome and hormone pathologies are two of the main ones that I concentrated on. And what made you go down the route of saying with the traditional doctors, I said this to James as well, you know, they're mostly with their head down in their day-to-day -day practice. Was this awareness that, you know, the quality of applicants and everything along those lines getting lower and lower, part of your passion to take yourself to social media and spread the word far and wide? Because there aren't many doctors with your level of opinions and being so vocal about it. So does it come down to a lot of that or is there anything else behind your reason for being on social media and being so vocal? Yeah, part of it is one of the friends that I developed along the way, his name is Derek. He has a YouTube channel called More Plates, More Dates. And I was briefly medical director of his clinic and they wanted me to be more vocal. And I realized that I give these spiels to patients and they're explaining the risks and the benefits of a condition accurately, so oftentimes in a complicated way, but that also the patient can understand. And I realized that you can reach more people faster instead of saying it a thousand different times with a patient panel of a thousand. You can have a patient panel of 200, spend a bit more time with them, and then also reach tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people by saying those same concepts to people on social media. <laughs> So I've kind of continued doing that. One other thing is many clinicians are hesitant to go on social media because they have things that are brought up about what they say that are negative doubters, if you will. And this should be looked at as a positive rather than a negative. Yeah, I absolutely can imagine. And also at the same time, I'm sure people 
quite enjoy being locked away in their office and being able to give advice and have no one questioning them. Whereas when you put yourself out on social media, it doesn't matter how scientifically backed what you're talking about is, you're going to have someone saying something. And for me, that just solidifies your argument or ultimately makes you learn. And that's why I think that you're saying that's ultimately the value of that. But it's an interesting uh, role that you've taken. And where does it go from here? Do you feel that you're going to be doing that for a long, long time now in terms of putting out information for people to access? Yes, I definitely will. I think there's a lot of other ways to give information back to the public and also back to clinicians and scientists as well. So I plan to remain in the scientific community and I plan to continue doing clinical medicine, but just uh, part-time or half the time. And I continue to, I will continue to have a heavy focus on information, high quality evidence-based information free of charge to the public. So that's kind of myself and the other Gillette health clinicians like James and Dr. Martin. That's part of our mission for the next 60 years. And that's our plan. I love that. And now I want to transition onto some of the things that you said on social media, some of the things you said in other podcasts. And I want to keep this topic and this conversation nice and broad today. And you actually almost already mentioned it in regards to us being different types of carbs. And you said, in a quote, I was healthy until I went to the doctor. And you mentioned a few other statements as well. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I never realized the implication of saying something along those lines or my wife made me go or my husband made me go. Maybe more commonly, my wife made me go. So what are your thoughts on the statements that you're hearing many people come up with when they go into a clinician's office for the first time? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for this. One of the reasons is what we call the sick role. And many people for a multitude of reasons, but including ego and then also including self-fulfilling prophecy, their mindset might not. They're not ready to accept that there's something that they can improve in their health. There's what I call the Punnett square of a healthy mindset about health. And on the x-axis of the Punnett square on the top, that's the question, do I see myself as healthy? So you can see yourself as healthy or not healthy. On the y-axis or the, the side of the Punnett square, you have, am I doing something actively to objectively improve my health? Yes or no. Most people, if they see themselves as healthy, they are not doing something to actively improve their health. And conversely, if they see themselves as unhealthy, they are doing something but the optimal place of the Punnett square is actually to be seeing yourself as healthy on the left side of the square. And then also, despite seeing yourself as healthy, do something to improve your health. So I try to move people into that part of the square. And it is difficult because I have definitely been there myself. I have a lot of empathy for that. And where does that come from for yourself? Why is there that big gap between what we think we do and what we actually do? There's a lot of ways to look at this. And the science of mindset is complicated. Dr. Ali Crum, C-R-U-M, has done a lot of work on this as well. She's also done many podcasts. But there is certainly something to the uh, anecdote many people can think of a friend or a family in their life that might be in the stages of end-of-life care. And they are just particularly stubborn. And they have glass half-full, or as I call it sometimes, glass quarter-full mindset. So they're optimistically realistic. James is a different saying that he says for this too, but we have a similar outlook. And the benefit of that is it, it seems that these individuals, even if you study them scientifically, frequently beat the odds. Yeah, it's powerful. And you particularly mentioned that men tend to fall in this category more than women. And there seems to be 
a massive challenge from that perspective, from more of a gender perspective. What have you found to be very effective in terms of getting men to start prioritizing their health a little bit more, taking themselves to the doctor, getting themselves checked out versus waiting until they're almost forced into doing it by a person or by their condition? Yeah, I think that explaining what actually helps you by going to the doctor. I actually just had this conversation a couple times over the weekend because we went to various social events and whatnot. Uh, for example, a housewarming party for one of my wife's friends. I try not to bore my wife with talking about health optimization all the time, but if people <laughs> ask, I will happily go down those rabbit holes. And the topic came up of, he hadn't been the doctor in quite some time. And it was, well, why does going to the doctor actually improve your health? If they're just going to check your labs and maybe they check an A1C, a CBC, and a CMP and a lipid, and they say, everything's fine except your cholesterol. So you need to take a cholesterol med when you're 40 or 50. And other than that, just come back every year. But there's no other actionable advice. So the ways that it's actually going to improve your health are things that the patient themselves is doing. But it's the same way for a coach or a sport. So if you go to a coach they're going to explain, you know, different mobility drills or different strength drills, different dietary changes, even maybe some supplements or PEDs that you can take. And that's what actually improves your athletic performance. And it's the same thing with health. So if there is a supplement that's helpful and not harmful, or even a medication that's a tool or lifestyle advice, that's where the six pillars of health come in, diet, exercise, sleep, etc. then that's what's actually going to improve health. So it's not the act of going to the doctor itself, but it's the things that come after it. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I have a funny example that was a recent situation for myself is that I went to my girlfriend's dentist. She's from Mexico. And I went to see her family friend who's also a dentist who's been treating her teeth for like the entirety of her life. And she has amazing teeth. So I was like, okay, well, I'm in. Let me give this a shot. And in the past, I would neglect the dentist, not because I want poor dental hygiene, but because I went there, I spent a bunch of money and I felt that all it ended up being is, you know, more problems, more pain, and not a lot of solution. And then I go to this new dentist who is now the dentist of my life. And she goes in, she does all of this work, she gives me the most extensive cleaning and addressing and information of my dental hygiene that I've ever had in my life. And now I see the value of it. So maybe what I think a lot of the men and also people who generally don't see the value in going to see their doctor is not only do they think that, okay, it's a pain to go, but it's also like, well, maybe it's not actually going to be that effective. And maybe if I don't have a, a healthcare plan, I have to pay a lot of money for this as well. So I'm realizing that maybe it's a very, very similar situation to what I had with my teeth. And so I found someone who actually could give me the real care and actually make me think that this is worth my time and my money and maybe even I'm underpaying here. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. My brother is a dentist and <laughs> there's definitely a high return on investment for both dental care and health care if done properly. In the future, one of our podcasts, to plug our new Gillette Health podcast, one of our topics is the tier list for investing in your health. So what gives you the highest return on investment and then what is uh, essentially a ripoff and everything in between. Oh, wow. That sounds like a very interesting episode. Can you give us a few spoilers so that people get excited and head over to your podcast after listening to this one? <laughs> Certainly can. It's not of a surprise that the six pillars of health are at the top. So diet, exercise, interventions. Below that, um, regarding diagnostic testing, complete micronutrient panels, especially for someone that doesn't have a very varied diet, that would be pretty high on the list because a lot of people say, hey, what labs other than your basic hormone uh, labs and other panels 
what else would be good? Would it be a GI map? Would it be urine or saliva testing? Would it be telomere length testing? Would it be epigenetic testing? Random SNPs? Those are all somewhere all somewhere else in the tier list, but not as high as a complete micronutrient panel. Oh, wow. That is very interesting. And we'll have to listen to the remainder of the episode to find out what's absolutely... Yeah, actually, maybe you can give us maybe a couple that are absolutely not worth our time. Yeah, so things that are not worth your time is epigenetic testing, because epigenetic tests change so quickly. Something that is not worth the time for health outcomes, it just basically tells you a number that you are curious about, is most age clocks. So most age clocks are accurate for the last day or two, but age clocks you can change that very, very, very quickly. So health scores, some of them are decent, but age clocks in general are not worth it outside of just a fun number. Maybe the same as a Zodiac sign, if I can say that. I don't know if that's kind of controversial. <laughs> I think that will be controversial, but I got your example on that front. And I want to transition back to something you said at the very beginning as well. You look to increase increase athletic performance and also cognitive performance as well. And I want to go through your thoughts on some of the best ways that we can optimize our brain health for better focus, for attention span, and for information retention as well. What are some of your best practices when it comes to optimizing our cognitive health? Like anything else, a lot of times it starts with diet and exercise. Diet-wise, looking at omega-3s is a, a pretty high-yield thing to do, especially in older age categories, especially for DHA or during the antepartum period, so when you're pregnant. Another thing that can be very high yield is adding in exercise that helps in multiple ways, not just oxygenating the brain, but multiple other ways to improve, decrease the risk, or in order to improve cognitive function in older age and also concurrently decrease the risk of conditions like depression or anxiety. That being said, it's not super sexy to just talk about diet and lifestyle for everything. People like to ask about supplements and I love supplements too. I might not take a hundred something tablets per day, but I do like supplementation other than omega-3s, especially as age increases. Things like NMN or NR are very reasonable and in the right uh, individual, especially with a history of neurodegenerative disease, things like Shilajit are potentially high return, but also relatively low risk. And then um, depending on the person, especially if they exercise a lot or if they're also on a lipid med and they also exercise a lot, CoQ10. Excellent. That's really good to know. And in terms of the nutrition side of things, I know it's not the sexiest to talk about, but if we dive into the details, hopefully someone takes some value away from it and can stay uh, just as excited as we are to talk about it. But in regards to their nutrition, what does a typical diet look like for someone who's trying to optimize their cognitive health? For the average person in a developed country, they likely need to increase their fiber sources. So that would not just be you know, any old fiber. Dietary fiber, both soluble and insoluble are important. Prebiotic fiber is also important. Postbiotics, especially if your gut microbiome is not producing enough of them. For example, if you don't have enough butyrate producing bacteria, then taking some butyrate can be reasonable. And you can get all these things in the diet too. You don't have to supplement with them. A lot of root vegetables are good sources of fiber. And then a broad spectrum of, you know, some cruciferous vegetables, some green leafy vegetables, some root vegetables, as we mentioned, some berries, some fruits, not overloading any specific thing. There's actually some pretty good studies that I, I know James also likes to mention, so I don't know if he mentioned them in his podcast here, but there's one that looks at using placebo, using supplement nootropics, and then using a diet that just 
increases fruit and vegetable, but especially vegetable intake in the morning. And it does appear to act as a pretty powerful nootropic because if you think about it, a lot of different antioxidants and polyphenols come from fruits and vegetables. So instead of taking fisetin, you eat more strawberries as one example. That is very interesting. I know he didn't actually mention that as well, so I'm glad that you did. And it does make sense in terms of being very, very receptive early in the morning and wanting to be probably most cognitively sharp and putting in nutrients that are going to help you remain cognitively sharp. It almost sounds like it's very, very logical when you think about it, but when it comes to actually practically applying it, it's probably not done quite as much as well. So it's really good to know. And in terms of the omega-3 side of things as well, what are we looking at in terms of ratios for supplementation and maybe some key food sources as well? For most people, a ratio of about 1.5 to 2 EPA to DHA is reasonable. But we like to check omegas, so I'm hyper-analytical, and I like to see the numbers. So, And I like to get intracellular omega checks. So it looks at not just the serum, but also the level that's in you know the red blood cell. So that'll be your level on average over the past three to four months, because that's the lifespan of a red blood cell. And depending on that, you can tailor up or down your EPA dose. If you're trying to get your triglycerides down, you usually want more EPA. For example, ethyl is just a type of EPA. If you're trying to um, heal from concussion or traumatic brain injury, for example, if you're in the special forces or you're an athlete that has a concussion, or if you're a three-year-old that had a concussion, then more DHA makes a lot of sense. In fact, significant amounts of just DHA can uh, improve the healing of a TBI. That's super interesting. And if you're wanting to give a child a competitive advantage from a knowledge perspective, would you go down this path as well of maybe increasing the DHA? If it's not able to be done on the diet, yes, I would certainly consider supplementing DHA for children. In general, if you live more inland, it is harder to find sources of DHA. A lot, there's a lot of easy sources of omega-3s in fish. Brilliant. Uh, super good to know. And coming on to another topic that's very well discussed on this show and very well discussed by yourself as well as the population who, who experience uh, issues with their weight and obviously piling on a lot of weight, piling on a lot of pounds and ultimately a lot of body fat as well. And there seems to be a big rise in weight loss uh, interventions from the perspective of injections like semi-glutide, for example, which seems to be on paper quite a attractive thing to look at, right? When you look at the studies, you look at the potential amount of weight that can be lost, and you also look at the potential ease of something like this to someone who is had who has had challenges with their weight for their entire life, who maybe has not found themselves have the best relationship with food or exercise. It seems like a, a very, very attractive thing. And I'm sure it sounds like a very attractive thing to a healthcare practitioner who wants to see people with less body fat on their frame, surely. What are some of the potential downsides to things like this that we're maybe not looking at, whereas potentially we're just focusing more on the short-term benefits? Before I talk about a whole host of downsides to GLP-1s, including semaglutide, I will note that it is one of my favorite tools to use because at the end of the day, supplements and medications are the same. They both have pharmacodynamics, drugs, drugs affect on the body, pharmacokinetics, body's metabolism, the drug. So supplements and medications are the same. Yes, usually medications have more side effects and more efficacy, and they're more well studied. So I like them from that perspective too. But not to rabbit trail on that too much, GLP-1s like semaglutide are used very often there's actually, uh, within the last week, the FDA put out a warning for compounded semaglutide. It's not really specific to semaglutide, though. Compounded medications are a heterogeneous product. And depending on the pharmacy, and yes, there are compounding pharmacies that I do not use. 
because uh, I have seen enough. I've seen thousands of labs from patients and I know well enough which compounding pharmacies I'd like to use their product and which ones I don't. The patient also has a choice of using a compounding pharmacy or a brand name medication. And some people just like using the brand name medications. If indicated, if you ask me personally, and it is affordable and accessible, I would almost always use the brand name medication. And there is brand name semaglutide. It's not compounded with anything, at least at this point. In the future, it'll likely be compounded with SGLT2s and whatnot, especially for diabetics. Um, although that isn't 100% true, there's actually GLP-1s compounded with insulin. So technically, there, there's combo meds that have both the GLP-1 and insulin in it. But uh, some of the side effects include cholestasis, so basically the hepatobiliary tract. Think of it a system of rivers that comes from your, your gallbladder, liver, and pancreas that all gets clogged up, and a lot of people have their gallbladder taken out. So it's very common, especially in females or men that have high estrogen, to get their uh, a gallbladder attack and have to have a surgery to take their gallbladder out after being on semaglutide for a long time or any GLP-1. It can also slightly raise the resting heart rate, but only three to four beats per minute. If you start exercising, that'll lower it by 10. So if you start semaglutide, then uh, obviously you're working with an interdisciplinary team of, you know, a DC and a PT and a dietitian and a doctor, and they're putting together uh, an exercise plan for you too. Or uh, perhaps you're adept enough to restart your own. So people who start semaglutide, they should start exercising as well, and their heart rate will actually go down. So that's not as big of a worry. But other worries include pancreatitis. And then also probably the biggest one is it's kind of like the old lap bands. People are probably probably familiar with a lap band. You can It's a bariatric surgery where they just kind of tighten up the stomach. You overeat that, so you stretch it out. And almost everybody that gets those gains back almost all the weight. And semaglutide, if you don't change your lifestyle, is the same. So there's kind of a couple ways to look into it. You could approach it like a diabetic. Diabetics plan to st stay on at least a low dose of a GLP-1 like semaglutide indefinitely. But if you're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum and you're actually relatively metabolically healthy, you just have a high body fat percentage and you're trying to preserve the beta cells of your pancreas because it does have a legacy effect of beta cell preservation even after you stop it. That's one of the things I love about the medicine. Then in that case, the most important time to get medical care and see your doctor is after you stop the medication. But almost all these clinics that you're not getting brand name semaglutide, they're a monthly subscription that includes your semaglutide in the prescription. So these people do not want to pay the $200 monthly subscription if they're not getting the medicine. They're like, well, what am I getting? So what they, happens is they get addicted to it. They lose a whole bunch of lean body mass. They lose their metabolism. They go back on a relatively low calorie diet, but their lean body mass is so low that they start just gaining fat. And every time they go back up to their same weight, they're fatter with a lower metabolism and less lean body mass, they go back to the clinic and they say, well, I, I need semaglutide again. I couldn't maintain it. And this is just gonna continue for five to 10 years. It's great for us board certified obesity medicine doctors that are hopefully treating patients holistically and not just taking them off and acting like they're better. But the most important time to get medical care is after you get off the medication. Yeah, that's huge. And it almost sounds like something like Herbalife or Slimming World, right? It's like, well, let me go back to that thing that really worked well for me. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. The thing that's working really well for me is also the reason why I'm still stuck in this cycle and have a ton of metabolic damage as well. So for someone who might be in that situation right now, they've maybe gone on something along those lines and they find themselves in a position where they've maybe come off or they're feeling they are regaining the weight. They're feeling like, yeah, they've lost a lot of body mass. Where do they go from there? One is consider finding a different provider, perhaps a board certified 
doctor in obesity medicine. And obviously there's heterogeneity within that as well. But if that's if they're not going down that route, then look at the six pillars of health, look at lifestyle, look at your hormones as well, get a DEXA scan, see what percentage of body fat you have, what percentage of fat-free mass you have, what bone density you have. Because if things like your lean body mass and bone density is of concern, perhaps addressing those things first and then addressing your body fat is the next way to go. And then the other thing to consider is, as much as I like working with medical doctors, consider working with someone like a uh, PT or an athletic trainer or a dietitian. That way you get that interdisciplinary approach, ideally a clinic that has all of those professionals that talk to each other in the same system. And that's not common really, is it? It's not super common in the alternative medicine sphere. There are some clinics like that, like even within Kansas City, I can think of two. So I can think of my clinic, and then I can think of the TAGS clinic, TAGS Center for Nutrition. So there are a few, and um, some big private clinics that are uh, have kind of like morphed into academic centers also have these interdisciplinary teams like Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic. And most academic centers do have these that also, you know, they're like their state run, for example, University of Kansas has interdisciplinary teams that talk to each other. The dietitians will talk to the residents that are rounding and whatnot, but it's not particularly common. And part of that is just because people don't seek them out. People seek out alternative medicine. If you look at the buzzwords, alternative medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine, it's literally exponentially increasing. And there is such high demand that DCs, uh, chiropractors, one of them works at my clinic, but there's also DCs practicing by themselves and naturopaths as well. And I've worked with both of those professions and I have many good friends that are in those professions, but just like even as a medical doctor, it, you, the care of the patient is literally a higher quality of care if you have multiple professionals working at the same clinic. So when people start seeking out clinics like that, they will become more and more common. Mm. And as a medical practitioner, do you tend to get pretty frustrated with the level of quality of care all around your industry? And then obviously people, rather than searching for traditional medicine and lifestyle interventions, are looking for routes like alternative medicine, functional medicine, etc., versus going down the route of something that could genuinely help them, but they've just been kind of traumatized or scarred from other practitioners that they've been in contact with? I'm not sure. Sure. Just because the thesis is not working does not mean the antithesis is true. So just because the GP that your insurance company happens to consider in-network and preferred, I did learn that you can be an in-network provider, but not be a preferred in-network provider. So imagine how ridiculous that is. <laughs> um, and then imagine that you're paying a high insurance premium just for that too. We do have a lot of uninsured patients that see us because we also have direct primary care at our clinic. And we also have a lot of people with what's called health sharing. There's Christian health sharing and non-Christian health sharing like Zion Health. So there's a lot of options. And I think that these will only get more and more popular, especially as the country transitions to wanting single payer, which is like Medicare or Medicaid for everyone, which I think will be excellent. But I tend not to get frustrated because frankly, a lot of people find me because they're looking for, for holistic care or functional medicine. And also because one system is not necessarily better than the other. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's a very nicely and diplomatic answer that you've just given there. But no, I love that you are just kind of flying your own flag versus, you know, looking towards the things that aren't going so well in the industry. And I think that's the same for every single industry that you could possibly be in. There's going to be parts of it that you absolutely love and other parts of it that you maybe 
you know, in the, in the kindest way possible, despise in a certain way. But ultimately, you've just got to focus on your own path and make sure that you're doing the best to improve the quality of that ultimately. And something I want to transition onto now, which I think that I don't know if I have heard you speak about, but I know that most people won't necessarily be too excited to talk to their doctor about, which is their sexual performance and also their sexual health as well. So I'm keen to get your take on everything sexual performance. If someone is maybe experiencing challenges in the bedroom or even just wants to optimize their performance in the bedroom, what type of things would you be recommending outside of, of course, the nutrition and the lifestyle interventions? What other things can we be looking towards? Or maybe even there's some extras to those lifestyle interventions that we've not discussed yet. Yeah, there's a lot to do. Just like any other thing that you're trying to optimize, you want to get subjective info and objective info. And at some point, I think I need to like write a pamphlet or a mini book or something about this, because I think that uh, sexual health is like one, both hormones and sexual health. It's going to be like mental health was 10 years ago, because previously it was taboo to talk about mental health. And now I'm very happy to say, I think it's very accepted to talk about your mental health and struggles with mental health and whatnot. So I think that's kind of on the docket as the next thing coming up. But the first thing is to get the subjective info, you have to talk to your healthcare provider about it. So your doctor or your NP. And um, a lot of people do. Sometimes it's the second visit or the third visit, but that's okay. It certainly doesn't have to be the first visit. Sometimes it's not the most important thing to address. And the second thing is to get that objective data. So get the labs, actually check your testosterone, check your thyroid, check your estrogen, and see what they look like. And consider how you can optimize those things if there's something off, either naturally, endogenously, or even exogenously in some cases. And then of course, there's a whole host of tools, but the tools should not necessarily be deployed until the root cause is found. Sometimes the cause can be found just by a trial of a supplement or a medication. That's what we call both diagnostic and therapeutic. So it might help and treat a symptom, but if it does help that, then you say, yep, that was probably it because improving it worked. Mm, and what are some of the common things that you see for, I want to be gender specific here because I'm sure it's going to be different for both sets of genders, but when someone has low sexual performance or low libido, for example, I want to start with women because I feel like you know men get all the best uh, share of attention. So if a woman is experiencing that, maybe what are some of the things that you might see being the common challenges for her in that situation? There's a lot of things with women. There's not one main one. With men, a lot of times it is total androgen load. That's testosterone plus DHT binding the androgen receptor. Yes, that can play one part in women, but some of it is the ratio of estrogen to androgen. So the average female at any time has about three to four times the amount of testosterone circulating in estrogen if you account unit for unit. So um, let's say they have an estradiol of 100 picograms per mil. They have a, a total testosterone of three to four times that. And if you have a ratio that's on or off in either way that can affect both libido and also, for example, the ability to orgasm. Another thing is alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, especially if a female is inside a lot, for example, for a job, this affects kiss peptin related neurons. That's neurons that connect the limbic system, which is the emotional system of your brain. It has the amygdala. It has the includes the hypothalamus and the hippocampus. And this is what helps with hormone release and basically kickstart puberty. It's like the, the on switch for puberty. And there's a couple ways to target these. And it's not kispeptin. Kispeptin is a peptide that's in study for a lot of things and potentially very useful for a lot of things like hypothalamic amenorrhea. 
But one way is just increasing your alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone from getting more sunlight. That's why if you look at, you know, countries like Brazil, when the beaches open up, and I guess it would be like winter time in the Northern Hemisphere. But anyway, when the beaches open up, the libido and the amount of times a day that people have sex increases significantly. There is a lot of different uh, new medications for this. For example, one, is, one of them is brimelanotide. I call it melanotan-3, but it's FDA approved and indicated for what's called hypoactive sexual disorder in women. Obviously, I think this is a completely ridiculous diagnosis because how do you, how do you define a hypoactive um, that is wildly different from person to person? So I guess it's indicated for everybody who might consider it because some people uh, could have a relatively high libido, but I guess relative to their partner, it's hypoactive and they might want to increase it anymore. And then conversely, somebody might have almost no libido, but their partner also might have very low libido and they specifically don't want to do anything for it. So obviously you shouldn't force a medication like bromelanotide on an individual like that. We could go down the list quite a bit and talk about like nitric oxide pathways, beta nitrate, L-citrulline, PDE5 inhibitors, but maybe that's a good start in the discussion regarding women and libido. Absolutely. And when it comes to nutrition specifically, we mentioned sunlight and a few supplements that we could essentially go down the route with or medications. What about nutrition when it comes to optimizing sexual performance and libido? There are a lot of things that can play a part. If, you're have, if you have a very low protein diet, then tyrosine can potentially help because it helps synthesize dopamine. If you have a poor micro, gut microbiome, then you can have impaired serotonergic signaling. It is correct that serotonin does not directly cross the blood-brain barrier, but there's a lot of enzymatic counterplay and also a lot of epigenetic change that you get from what's called peripheral serotonin, which 90% is made in the gut, and central serotonin, that's central, that's in your brain. So the, um, and this is both for females and males. Females have, you know, on average, like six inches of erectile tissue in, inside the body. And the libido is partly controlled by if these tissues are filled with blood or not. Sometimes you use an analogy of a barrel. You have a barrel and on the top you have two hoses. Those are your two nitric oxide synth synthesis pathways. And you also have leaking from the sides of the barrel, almost like a, a drip hose in a garden. And it can leak out faster or it can leak out slower. Yes, you can put in more nitric oxide via the two different synthesis pathways. For example, again, the beta nitrate or the nitrosagene or citrulline. And then you can close up the barrel with things like PDE5 inhibitors, even like a, a low dose of tadalafil. But the tug of war regarding how, like, when this will happen, so the master switch off and on, is a tug of war between dopamine and serotonin. So if you have not enough serotonin, then that will cause serotonin deplete low libido. And if you don't have enough dopamine, the same thing in both men and women, one of the main causes of premature orgasm is too much dopamine, not enough serotonin. And then delayed would be too much serotonin, not enough dopamine. That's why a lot of people on SSRIs, like sertraline, will notice the more delayed, whereas the premature, which some females actually like this effect, if you're on um, things that increase dopamine, like high doses of tyrosine or mucinopurines, which is velvet bean extract, or even bupropion or uh, sinose, it can give that effect. That's super, super good to know for all of the women listening. I've had, I'm glad we've had this conversation because honestly, it's either some sex expert speaking about the orgasm of your life, or it's someone just hiding away from any talk of it whatsoever. So I'm glad that we found a middle ground between the two today. And something that massively impacts sexual performance and performance 
in life full stop is going to be the stress that we experience. And interestingly enough, I read a post of yours which spoke about, obviously, a lot of stress, but also too little stress as well. And I found the too little stress thing pretty interesting comparatively to the high stress. I think a lot of us know what it's like to experience high stress, but not a lot of us know maybe what experiencing too little is. So can you run through exactly what too little stress looks like for everyone whose mind is blown right now? Yeah, the analogy that I like to make is to weightlifting. So obviously not all of the listeners will be weightlifters, but hopefully they incorporate some sort of anaerobic training as part of their exercise regimen to last a lifetime. But the too little stress, it's like if you're lifting a weight in the gym, if you don't lift fairly close to your reps in reserve, you're leaving gains on the table. So basically in in non-gym bro speak, it means that the progressive overload of making effort feel good with weightlifting is very similar when it comes to stress. So if you're able to, and this is well known within pediatrics. So within pediatrics, we have something called developmental milestones. And some of these developmental milestones have to do with the ability to cope with and respond to stressors in life. And this actually continues through adulthood. My friend Andrew Huberman likes to say that development of the human never ceases. And by that, he means the development of the brain and the neurologic development. And I think this is definitely true because as you age, you can learn to respond to stress better and better and better and better and better. And then you can, not artificially, but you can seek out situations that you will respond to and you will benefit from and that effort will feel good. And that positive feedback mechanism can do things like increase testosterone or give a really good dopaminergic response. In general, things that are difficult that you succeed with are going to give you that much higher persistent dopaminergic load compared to something that is very easy. That's why after you run, well, one of the reasons why after you like run a 5k and do well, maybe you win a race, you get a different sort of a dopamine release than sitting on the couch and eating a chocolate bar. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all relate to that. And I'm curious, how do we know where is the right amount of stress for us? Because I think that there's this ease to start loading just about everything onto ourselves, committing to a personal goal, a professional goal, an athletic goal, and just about everything we can get our hands on and then feeling overloaded with everything. So how do we find the right amount of stress for us? I always think that we all have our certain stress threshold, but how do we know whether we're on that cusp where we're just pushing ourselves to grow and to get better or versus knowing whether we're overdoing it essentially? The effort should still feel good. This is pretty well known within different professions and careers. If you look at burnout rates, a lot of people who don't enjoy it as much, even with the same amount of effort, it will not feel good. So if you particularly enjoy whatever field you're in, and I think I really enjoy the field that, I, that I'm in, even with high level of effort, it still feels very good to do so. And part of it is just estimating. So it's just like if you went up, so the more you have stressed yourself and survived that, not gotten injured by stressing yourself, the more you'll know. So at this point, if I walk up and there is you know X number of pounds on the deadlift bar, I probably have a pretty good idea if I can lift it or not lift it. And it's the same way with stress, just unfortunately a little bit more complicated. So if you're stressing yourself multiple times within the same day or the same week, then you want to be more careful with your load. Just like if you walk up to a deadlift bar that you can do three reps, you shouldn't plan to do 10 reps back to back to back because um, you'll 
likely fail after the second or the third one. Yeah, and I'm curious to get your take on this as well, given the fact that I think a lot of us, unfortunately, have the stresses in our lives that we can't control. So maybe the stresses of family or the job that we're in that we don't particularly enjoy. Would you then recommend us to reduce our load in other areas of life to not experience that same level of burnout because our capacity is not as high if we can't remove some of those stresses that don't feel good but are necessary for our day-to-day lives? Yes. So one example I make with that is if you if you have a family that is particularly stressful around the holidays, maybe don't plan any of the load of a stressful job in the week before. So either take time off or plan to just do things that aren't particularly stressful with your job. That way, if it is a stressful time, then you'll be able to handle it and account for it. And then when you're not doing things that are particularly stressful that come up within you know, the family or the job or whatnot, then add your stressful volume, whatever you're doing to build up that threshold in the other time. It's definitely not an exact science, but the concept will play out. Yeah, I like to kind of give the analogy of like a water bucket in front of us. And I like to think that all the stress, whether it's good or bad, quote unquote, is just kind of being tipped into the same bucket. And it doesn't matter what it is. If you're you know, close to overflow, then you're close to overflow. So whether you add in something that's really effective, like exercise, for example, yes, that might create a little hole in your stress bucket and allow some out. But at the same time, if you keep piling on, piling on, it's eventually probably going to overflow. And then, you know, the challenge is that most people thought, oh, well, exercise is the last thing I put into that stress bucket. And then, you know, things just start going crazy from there. And it's the first thing to take out. But that's where I like to try and remind people that there are things that add to your bucket, but also empty it as well and that's kind of the way that i'd like to go down that route as well and we're kind of touching on to the realm of mental health now and something that i've heard you speak quite strongly about is spiritual health as well which once again you've mentioned covering people from a very very holistic perspective and sometimes we think about the mind we think about the body but the spirit is kind of left out what are some of your best practices when it comes to integrating the spirit into that equation this is certainly a very personal thing And spiritual health, usually how I define it, is it's the self-actualization on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you have your physical needs first and then your mental needs. And yes, if you don't address your mental needs, your physical needs will suffer. But at at the end of the day, you know, you need water and shelter and food. So you got to address your physical needs. And then at the top is self-actualization, which is your metaphysical need. So even for a nihilist. Being a nihilist is in and of itself kind of a, I guess, a somewhat humanist fulfillment, which can be a healthy fulfillment of your spiritual needs. So you it doesn't really have anything to do with religion, but it is very common for uh, people in medicine, especially during like residency when they do hospital shifts, you experience a lot of end of life care. And at the end of life, when the, the body is not doing well, the mind also might not doing well. The most important thing to them is their spiritual health and what they've done or what their purpose is in life, even if they are not religious. Yeah, it's powerful. And you mentioned at the very, very beginning of the episode that your dad prays for his patients as well. Is that something that you incorporate in your practice as well? And is it something that you encourage in your patients or give a gentle introduction to? I don't get that you're the type of guy who forces religion or anything on anyone but i'm sure that there's a way to open their minds to that do you engage in that often yeah i do and i think that it helps as well so i'm a christian and i'm spiritual i don't really consider myself particularly religious but uh, often patients ask me to pray for them and sometimes 
if appropriate, I say, you know, I'm, I'm worried about you or I'm not worried about you, but I'm still praying for you. So in some cases, but there's been a lot of cases when I've seen patients and they say, because I used to practice with a faith-based practice and they've told me, I am so glad you did not try to pray for me. All the other doctors <laughs> in your practice just tried to pray for me, but they just kind of like ignored um, my condition or whatnot. So I also try to do my best to, you know, obviously listen to the patients and then add that aspect in as a dessert, but not the main course, if you will. I do like your analogy a lot of the water bucket and mental health that reminded me of another analogy for mental health that I have is the bucket and you want that outlet. Spiritual health can be one of those things. Um, prayer, meditation, mindfulness, that can be another one of those things that kind of helps it boil off. Some people seal it in and what happens when you seal it in is it becomes a pressure cooker and it can explode. And perhaps that's part of the, the flip, the switch that flips for conditions like mania. Yeah, I can absolutely agree. And I think that whatever your outlet is, just utilize it as much as you possibly can. But I think that a lot of people find essentially a lot of value in having a practice like meditation, something along the lines of prayer as well, if that's where their beliefs take them. And ultimately, it's just all about having that pressure valve to release some of that stress that all of us are going to experience. And on that note as well, we haven't touched too much on mental health. We touched on just about everything else. And we're finally about to get here as well. Are there some practices that you do on a day to day basis to look after your mental health? I assume prayer is involved with that. And is there some things that you recommend for your patients as well that they can improve their mental health as well yeah for mental health practices one of the things that i really like doing is exercising in the morning even though on paper morning exercise is not especially fasted morning exercise is not optimal for i guess athletic performance outcomes at least on paper you know being consistent and being adherent is 95 percent of it but i do like to do that because i feel more calm the rest of the day and it can also, especially cardiovascular exercise can be a little bit meditative in and of itself. Um, you don't have to listen to podcasts during your cardio. Sometimes I like doing that as well. One thing I like to do is to pray with my family. And I also like to spend a lot of time with my kids. I have two boys that are one and three. So there's something uh, very strange about having your own children and seeing the things that they do that are both good and bad that they probably got from you. So um, I think that's also good for my mental health to realize some of my own weaknesses as well. And then uh, also just be happy that I've made it to this point. Yeah, I love that. And I've got a final few questions for you. And one is on the note of your sons as well. I've asked many, many different experts on the topic of masculinity. And I'm curious to get your take on masculinity as you raise two boys in a world where masculinity seems to be in a bit of a precarious place. You don't know whether you're too masculine and toxic or not masculine enough. and almost practically a woman it's hard to find that middle ground of what masculinity truly is when it comes to you as a man being an example for your two sons what does masculinity look like for you Gal? this question i guess doesn't surprise me but previously it would surprise me i recently did the art of manliness podcast if you listen to that i, I know the one yeah <laughs> and um i think his name is brett and we talked about the development normal male hormonal development we spent a lot of time talking about the antepartum period. So males when they're in the womb, when they're a fetus, males as newborns, males during their first three months of life, a mini puberty, males during adolescence, and then males during puberty. So the concept of manliness is more of a cultural one. And I've never really considered myself a cultural commentator, but I do know that the commonness of things like metabolic syndrome, 
earlier puberties, higher levels of estrogen. Estrogen, oddly enough, does masculinize the brain, but you do need high levels of testosterone to aromatize the estrogen to masculinize the brain. So it's not necessarily a hormonal state, but that certainly helps. So if you are in, it's arguably a natural environment. You know, there's a lot of things that are in our environment now, like plastics, which are not particularly natural, but there's still a lot of ways to be masculine in order to, you know, think of it as you're trying not to mess up the development rather than trying to artificially foster the development. So not trying to be hyper-masculine. A lot of physicians are type A, but oddly enough, people might not know this. I haven't really talked about it before. I'm not particularly a type A sort of a person, so I'm not too particular and uh, I'm okay delegating things to most people. So I'm not the, like, I'm not a hyper-masculine type A my way or the highway type of a person. So perhaps that's my own unique way of being masculine. Um, part of that is if you delegate something, then you shouldn't be too complaining when it turns out to be something that you may have not wanted. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess you put the responsibility in the person's hands and it's your responsibility to choose that person that you delegated the task for. But I like that. I think it's a nice middle ground. And essentially what you're saying is just kind of get out your own way and kind of let the masculinity and especially from a hormonal standpoint, allow the things to flow, remove anything that could be damaging from that perspective. Is there anything aside from plastics you just mentioned that we should be aware of? Yeah. So the main ones to look out for would be bisphenol A or phthalates. Another thing to look out for is if you're on a hyper extreme diet, for example, if you're developing and you're on a carnivore diet, you might have really low free testosterone and free DHT. You certainly wouldn't want that during development. If you are on a strict vegan diet and not on it for ethical reasons and you're not supplementing with other vitamins like B12 or vitamin D and also probably checking your labs during that time. In general, um, when you're a child, it's just a time to be on a nice balanced diet. If you're obese or you think you, um, you know, your child might be slightly heavier than their peers, that would be time to seek out care from a doctor. Again, preferably a board certified obesity medicine doctor that also sees pediatric patients. So a lot of it, uh, whether you're a kid or you're an adult, it's just trying to prevent things like metabolic syndrome or low testosterone that might impair masculine development. If you're someone like me that I don't consider as hypermasculine or type A, don't try to be that because I, I feel like a lot of cultural commentators, and again, I'm not a cultural commentator, but I feel like a lot of them try to make everybody into this prototypical model of uh, hyper-masculine individual. And a lot of people are just not that way. So it's okay to just be yourself if you're not at one extreme or another and be okay with that. I love that answer. I really do. And Kyle, this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing so much wisdom with us. And I've got a couple of final questions. And the first that I've got is what impact do you want to have on the world with the work that you do? I hope that I give the public tools to develop a balanced approach to health. So regardless of what their goals are, provide the evidence, help people understand it, and they can make an informed decision. Beautiful. I think you're doing a great job of that. And where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing? My main hub is Instagram. It's Kyle Gillette, MD, Gillette Health on all other platforms. On all platforms, we do have our podcast slash videos at Gillette Health. Amazing. Kyle, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. 
and go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.